or tell us more about, you know, the type of work you're doing? David, I'm unfamiliar with what you're referring to. What, what, when have we talked about that? Um, okay, well, let's back up. Um, <laughs> what area are you uh, studying Maybe. in machine learning and, or uh, deep learning or any, you know, what are you, what's your area of focus? Well, I'm not into machine learning or deep learning at this point. I, my PhD is in educational leadership. Okay. So I, I have, a, I have um, a degree in psychology and then a degree in clinical social work, which is counseling. I focused in counseling and political advocacy. And then I moved into educational leadership and did um, a thesis or a dissertation on the study of uh, anxiety, on the study of prayer's effect on test anxiety. So I looked at saliva samples and looked at, I guess you could say, the effect of stress on learning. Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I, I don't know if, if we're confused <laughs> or if we, if we went a different direction, but I'm willing to talk about those things if that's, that's the case. No, but, I mean, that's a, that's, Let's go ahead and talk about it. I mean, I've got you on the air. Yeah. Uh, so uh, go ahead and share, you know, some of your research and, uh, you know, some of the passions you have. And yeah, sure. Maybe give some pros and cons to your approaches and uh, go ahead and share. Sure. So um, I was a professor. I've been a professor for seven years at a small Christian school in Nampa, Idaho, called Northwest Nazarene University. Yeah, it's awesome. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's a good school. And during my time there, um, I was teaching social work students how to become therapists and political ad- activists in the area and teaching them how to meet people where they're at and do social work. If you're familiar with social work, there's a lot of different capacities that a social worker can be involved with. Um, and the farther I got into my teaching career, the more I noticed that students were incapacitated by test anxiety in a way that was like surprising to me, like they would really struggle. And, and I think it's a cultural and a generational thing where there's not a lot of pressure put on this millennial generation to perform. They're in the, everyone gets a trophy generation. Yeah. And so, so much so that technology has impacted the way that we interact face to face. There's not as many face to face interactions. So there's not as much high pressure social scenarios. And so I saw a phenomenon taking place where it seemed like the test anxiety was almost becoming debilitating. And ironically, um, I was in a Christian institution, so I would um, have the freedom to pray with my class before tests. And I noticed a difference. I started doing like a subtle personal study where I was praying with some classes and not praying with others before tests to see if it had an effect. And I saw test scores changing um, subtly. So I thought, well, I'm going to organize this and turn it into a dissertation and publish the results. So what I went to do, I'm going to look up, I'm going to pull up my PhD real quick. I mean, my dissertation, sorry. Well, you know, it's uh, uh, just, uh, you know, some share something about prayer. I pray. Yeah. And uh, there's a. Um, certain aspect when you pray sincerely. It says, God says that if you pray sincerely, in fact, it's offensive to him if you don't pray. Yes, sincerely. yes. It's almost as if it's almost as if you shouldn't have prayed at all if you don't want to pray sincerely. And so it's true. And um, it's kind of funny because my results will echo that. Um, if you look, I, I went and I, I looked at students' heart rates, 
their salivary cortisol, which is a measure of the amount of cortisol someone's experiencing and point in time, and what's also called alpha amylase. And that's another uh, bio measure of stress, a biomarker measure of stress in the body. And I took saliva at different uh, um, time marks after presenting students with a impromptu like SAT test or IQ test, it was. And so what we would do is we'd bring students in and we would say, hey, what I'm going to do, unbeknownst to you, is I'm going to give you an IQ test. And in that IQ test, what we're going to do is we're going to publish the results on campus for everyone to see. And they had already agreed to the, that. Great yeah, they already agreed <laughs> to the study, you know, so they're freaking out a little bit. And this was all based on multiple amounts of um, research studies that had shown what types of stressors were the most stressful to students. And one of the most stressful was the social stressor, the social pressure of test scores and test um, test achievement. Intergroup, intergroup intelligence measures, I would say. So what I did was told them that, and then we would take their saliva. And then offer them one of three different ways to mitigate that stress. So we, we had one group where we said, now we're going to take time to um, lead you through prayer. We're going to take time to either give you a study guide. And another group, we're going to take time to um, do a guided meditation with you. And so out of the three groups, we did not see significant results in the amount of stress that was decreased by each by each. Uh, I guess each formula or each attempt, like the study guide, the test, and the prayer didn't show a significant difference. But what we did find when we looked into the findings more deeply is what you're saying, which kind of supplements what you just said, was that students who believed in prayer, because we also asked a question um, if you believe that prayer would lower your test anxiety, we found that students who did believe that prayer would test, would limit their test anxiety, had um, significant differences in the amount of anxiety that was measured biologically after um, they were given the stressor. You know, there's uh, um, there was some research talking about just the principle of belief. And uh, they said that uh, they looked at a group of people, you know, and they said, what makes the difference between a person who's very successful versus someone who isn't successful or moderately successful? I guess that's, you know, in a quantitative terms, maybe it would be like money, happiness in their relationships, yeah. uh, job fulfillments, etc. And there was, you know, it wasn't just IQ. It was interesting. It was uh, they found that uh, individuals who did really well succeeded we're not necessarily the smartest in the group. We're not necessarily the most beautiful or the most handsome or the strongest, but they were the ones uh, that had a strong belief that didn't give up. Um, so the point of that research was that uh, don't give up so easily. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, because if you can just believe you can be successful. And uh, so it's really interesting that your research is showing that, uh, if they just have this sense of belief, strong belief in God, um, and they pray sincerely, you know, that that's going to actually help them. It's not going to hurt. Them. I think what you're referring to, um, from what I've, from the research that I've done, is called grit. There's a book written on it, uh, famous, I a female researcher. Yeah, that's it. Grit. It's called grit. Yeah. And yep. she wrote and did the research on it. And 
yeah, it's that resiliency factor. I think we see a lot of um, success and resiliency, and I think that's the same in life, you know. And there's obviously a lot of factors that go into resiliency, but when you break it down to if someone is resilient or not, that tends to be what produces success. Um, like I said, as from the Bible, you know, it says a, a guy falls down seven times, gets up seven times. Every time you fall down, you got to get up. So um, with with the research, it's interesting because it showed that if you believe in something, it'll tend to work for you. And so you can say that it's just enhancing the placebo effect. But it's the idea that if you do believe in prayer, it will it will work. If you believe in meditation, it could potentially work. If you believe in using a study guide, it could potentially work. It's what you put your faith in. And if you put your faith into it and stick behind it, it could potentially serve a purpose for you. Where did you uh, uh, continue on the research? So you found this. Uh, did you do a larger population study or is this a, something where you're looking to get other organizations involved to uh, build a larger data sampling? Core? Well, I wanted to do a lot more with it. Um, funding was limited for the time. I think that that study itself was around $7,000 and the university helped me to pay for it. Um, but that was a year and a half ago. And since then I have changed career paths. So I have not pursued that research any longer. If I were to do it, I would probably scale up and go to a larger non-Christian university or multiple non-Christian universities and Christian universities and try to delineate and see if there was a difference between faith-based universities and non-faith-based universities to see if students had a different effect with prayer and not prayer. So in the area of deep learning where um, you could you utilize this is you have the features well-defined, uh, which give you a, a particular goal. So you, you take those features and then the machine starts to make a prediction. Uh, one, did it, you know, A, did it do a, a significant improvement? Yeah. B, moderate or no improvement at all? Or did it make it worse? Did it make the person's state of mind worse? And then you feed that into the machine and it, it reasonably calculates, say, between 85 to 90%, depending on how, uh, which classifier you use to make your model prediction. It's a statistical yeah, prediction yeah. is what it is. And so... Um, then you can, uh, interestingly enough, once you get a large enough data sample, you can feed uh, other people's inputs. You know, if they wanted to even go to your website, they could just feed in their state, mm -hmm. and it would can make a prediction. It says, "I think you're you're a happy person right now," <laughs> or it says, "I think you're a miserable person right now." Awesome. Uh, but it, uh, I, it's really interesting because I talked to a psychologist a couple of years ago. He uh, he had had uh, seven colors uh, for personality types, and he had figured out, I don't know how he got the archetypes, um, but uh, I was talking to him about where he could actually apply the psychology of cl uh, personality classifications. And uh, I was telling him, you know, in the area of artificial intelligence, that would, might be really pretty interesting to make predictions about a person's personality, and you could tell you know, like uh, based on their color, how to interact with them. So if they're a person who's more of a quiet introvert type, you would want to interact a, a certain way, carefully, yeah. uh, give them lots of information. Uh, was there anything that you drew from your studies that uh, that um, 
could be useful um, or is it just mainly a theme? No, I think when you're working with students, like from my experience, you have to be very attuned to what helps students succeed. I think that should be your job as a professor or a teacher of any type. If you want to, you're not there just to, um, just to direct like the gain of knowledge, but you want to help people succeed and learn how to deal with and pressure in pressure situations, especially when they're going to go into the real world. So I think it could give insight into the idea that student learning is not just based on the ability to memorize the material, but it's also based on a lot of other factors that have to do with personality and belief and spirituality and overall character and makeup. And I think when you tune into the, the individual themselves and try to understand the culture in which you're teaching, I think you could become a better professor and a better instructor overall. Did you find any correlations like uh, I've, I've heard, uh, oh, have you ever heard the phrase where there's a will, there's an A? Um, <laughs> no, but I like Yeah, I believe in that because like when I went to college, I, I was top of my class in my, my area of study. Yeah. But the reason why is boy, I, I, I was in there with the professors I really liked and, and I was talking theory with them and I was showing them code. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was a personal deal getting through college. That's uh, good. And when I... Yeah, when I got done, uh, uh, I taught for another 10 years after as an adjunct. But uh, when I got done, the professors, uh, certain ones said, hey, come back. We want to say thank you. We want to say, you know, good job and give a congratulations because I just kind of hurried through the line, you know. But they wanted to, you know, uh, make it more personal. Uh, And I think that's. I mean, I like your message because universities can feel kind of sterile. You know, you get there and you, you don't know if the professor likes you. You're yeah. pretty certain you, you can't get access to him when he's in, you're in a big university. So you're a number working with TAs and then the stress levels because you've, you've got, you know, these 40000 to $60,000 a year uh, tuitions, uh, you know, combined with the fact that you're wondering if you're getting, even going to graduate. <laughs> that must be a lot of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. I think, I think, you know, if we go down that path too, we, we're talking about in-person universities and there's a trend, you know, to with universities in order to cut costs, in order to make them more uh, affordable and more reachable to more student populations, there, a lot of them are moving online. And I think if you go to the, and forgive me, forgive me if I'm mistaken, but can we use the terms AI and deep learning? Are those synonymous? Uh, yeah, you bet. Okay, so uh, the the AI is basically kind of a slam against uh, programmers who can't program. In other words, uh, it was the it was a way to say if you don't know how to program, call it AI. But uh, uh, what the what what we're talking about deep learning is um, um, a form of programming that uses uh, artificial neuron. Uh, mathematical techniques yeah. to create a series of hidden layers to classify. Yes. So that's the difference. I, as far as I went in college, I went up to C++, took two rounds of C++, did it as far as I could. That was in 2001. Did the advanced calculus in C++ and decided that wasn't the field for me, which I kind of regret now, but that was a, it was a lot of fun, just really challenging. My brain didn't work that way at the time. It's a different way of thinking, and uh, the you know machines and psychology are going to be huge. Uh, you know, we have to feel like we can connect with those uh, machines in an anthropomorphic way. Otherwise, we'll hate them. Uh, 
and uh, you know, machines are are here to help us. They're not here to rule over us. It's so true. That's a you know, it's an important but thing. You know, like I was saying. So I think we're moving towards an online teaching um, atmosphere more and more. It's becoming obviously more and more common and more and more acceptable. It was it was strange at first. There was a stigma against like the universities of Phoenix and things like that, where it was primarily an online education. But now all the big universities are moving over to hybrid models or more online teaching models, at least flipped classrooms. And so I could see the potential for using deep learning, a potential and a danger, I guess, for using deep learning as a way to try to predict student behaviors or understand student personalities when you'll never meet them in real life. And I just, I think my study or studies like mine could show that there's a valuable component about um, understanding your, the person for who they are in person and spending a time with them and getting to know them on a different level. I guess if you could program that into a fi- find a way to deep learning, I just don't know if you can ever come to a place where teaching can cut out the human component. Well, it's uh, you know, it's in the early stages of computation right now. I mean, even though you know we've been increasing capacity, uh, it's interesting because this natural language I was talking about, where you're doing a, a you're talking to a machine in a natural language. Uh, if you're asking certain questions like uh, theories on, uh, let's say, behavioral theories, you could be talking different terminology and you could ask the machine different questions and it could be responding using, uh, it can use visuals too. It could show you uh, data. It could You could then interact with the data and, and have it draw some conclusions for you. And uh, so it's more of a quantitative uh, method for communicating with the machine right now. But, you know, with Watson, it kind of surprised us because uh, at first the machine didn't understand our jargon. It didn't understand, uh, you know, the semantic networks were just too weak to Mm -hmm. understand the English language. Now uh, you could put uh, you could put uh, Watson up against any Jeopardy player in the world. And uh, over 50% of the time, he's going to beat it uh, just because now it understands jargon. Yeah. So, the, I mean, it, it's still nuts and bolts. It's a, it's a, a tool, but it, it's a different interface now in the future, I think, that you'll see. So two things I, I want to ask you. Have you ever heard of the podcast, Should This Exist? Uh, no. Okay, it's a newer podcast, and they, they spend time um, going over newer technologies with the developers of the technology to say, really, what are the pros and cons of this moving into the future? And really, should this exist? Have you thought about what the pros and cons of this are? And one of the things that they address is there's a new type of therapy. There's a um, an AI therapy model where the machine can accurately depict and understand um, emotions through what someone's saying, typing in, you know, through algorithms, can understand what people are, what emotion they're experiencing and typically align that with what we use is called the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Health Disorders, and, and A, diagnose people with what they're going through, and B, offer therapeutic responses and advice to someone who's going through a struggling time. Well, that's, uh, you know, and how many therapists can you get access to for $400 an hour? It's crazy. And and how nice would it be to do it at 3 a.m. when you're really struggling? Yeah. And if, you know, these have real world consequences uh, because they can't, 
they don't have a feedback mechanism or a way to uh, to uh, analyze, then uh, you know there's a real cost. I mean, brain disorders, uh, and I, I'm not saying that people who are mentally ill or have brain disorders, but uh, yeah, but brain disorders, from what I've heard, is uh, you know it's a, it costs a trillion dollars a year. Yeah. You know, medications, uh, therapies, uh, you know, surgeries, etc. And, uh, you know, having some of that work, high quality work, being able to be automated and useful, that's an important part. If it isn't useful to the end user, that it will be discarded as junk. And so it shouldn't be built, right? Uh, if it, it causes the person damage, in other words, uh, there's some outcome that is a negative result of the therapy, uh, then it shouldn't be used, right? There's got to be some utilitarian yeah. morality associated with whether or not we and use And truly, it. what is your, what's your cutoff point? You know, if, if 90% of the clients are getting success rates and 10% are not, and do you analyze that and compare it with traditional therapy and traditional treatment? Or if one person um, has an unsuccessful rate and they take their life or something, is it all bad? It's, it's an interesting measure. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, it's uh, that alert. You know, we have a lot of systems now that are alerting us to things. You have alerts to calendars. You have alerts to uh, your bio feedback on your watch. Uh, you know, why why can't it uh, the watch be listening or you being able to talk to a watch uh, or a phone and then talking to a cloud server? Uh, you know, obviously privacy is going to be an issue because now you're, you're, you know, divulging information that you don't want sold publicly. Yeah. You don't want to be marketed by every uh, company that wants to use your, your information. Uh, so, yeah, so there's some ethical things there to usage, but it, uh, it has to be safe, just like robots. They have to be safe. Uh, we're going to have more robots in homes. We're going to have more computers. We're going to be using electricity a lot more. And so this these services, like you talked about, uh, the network, things that are networked uh, are going to be increased. So, you know, we have smart agents on these networks where we can talk to mm-hmm. them. Uh, you know, if we can't talk directly to a professor, maybe we can talk to a Mathematica bot who can help us through our yeah, yeah. statistics or our differentials, you know. David, have you, this is the other thing I was going to ask you earlier, have you watched the show Black Mirror? Uh, no, no. What, David, this will change your life. I'm not, I don't say that lightly. This is exactly, it is, it is on Netflix. It's a three, it's in its third season. Each season has a short amount of, um, episodes, probably four to 10. And each one is different. It's not like a continuous flow of a theme. Each and every episode is a new way to look at how the integration of technology and artificial intelligence, AKA deep learning will have an impact on the future of the way we interact with each other as humans or the way we interact with our world or society as a whole. And it's called, uh, what was that called again? Black mirror. Oh, black mirror. Okay. You're going to, what you're going to do is you're going to watch an episode of this and you're going to call me afterwards. I know you're going to be like, I can't believe I haven't seen this yet. It's incredible. Great. There's one, there's one episode. The one that was probably my favorite out of them is um, the future of social networking and the rating systems that we use with like Yelp and Google. And you, you, what you do is you wear like a contact, I think it was, system. And when you walk through your human interactions on a daily, like after this, I would say I have a chance to rate David as a one through five stars. 
and I give you a rating instantly. And so every social interaction we have throughout our day, we give someone a rating and our rating, our stars overall develops like how much, what parties we can get into, what kind of people we date, what kind of car rental prices we get, what kind of areas of the town we're allowed to go into and who we can talk to. And if you're a five-star person, you know, you're amazing. If you're a one-star person, you're like, it's a socioeconomic thing. It's, it's such an interesting evaluation of what um, social media could turn into. But overall, the show like is an analysis of how the 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 um, intersection of technology and humanity is not getting any smaller. Like it's becoming a more and more symbiotic relationship. Correct. So it's looking at like what the potential future of having that that relationship will look like, but in a way that's not so sci-fi that it's obscure. It's very relatable and sometimes creepy. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I read a book once, uh, it was on the, you know, pursuit of the arc that uh, they were they were looking for, you know, where it could be. And, uh, yeah. it was interesting. He went to an Island called Kirklos and there they found, uh, some Levites there or remnants of Levites. Uh, the Ark wasn't there, but there was some indication that there was something there. Uh, and, but the people, the, these Levites, they pray for three hours a day. And uh, they had a very interesting relationship. There were huge spiders on the island, which I hate spiders, but there were huge yeah. spiders on the island. And the spiders didn't bug them. Uh, they, would, they had a, such a harmony with their environment. They were no threat. And, um, you know, can you imagine having uh, how wonderful that must be to pray for three hours and commune with God for that long? And not day? have a spider. Yeah, not have any spiders. <laughs> by, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it sounds like a dream. Well, uh, we're pretty close on our time right now. Uh, just wanted to summarize and just share uh, just some concluding thoughts and maybe uh, put a link or put a uh, peg in for where people can contact you. Yeah. Uh, I think overall, I don't, I don't really, we've had a very tangential conversation all the time, but uh, up to this point in my career and in my studies, I've, I've learned that for me, spirituality is essential. I think the crossroads between spirituality and technology are becoming more and more real and we're having to determine that line. I'm, I'm interested to see how artificial intelligence plays into that. And I don't think there's ever going to be a substitute for a real spiritual experience that we'll get through technology. But I think that artificial intelligence can help us in the, in the realms of socializing, healthcare, mental health, teaching. I mean, biomedical developments, everything. I, I, I support it in everything, but... Man, David, I don't know how to wrap up. Everybody should watch Black Mirror, period, if you haven't seen it. And everyone should have some kind of spiritual life and also utilize technology to be better people. Well, I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, when, uh, when Christ comes again, you know, we'll even with the advancements that we have, it will still seem like uh, his advancements will be so much greater. Just It'll because be we're human, right? And we can never yeah. uh, believe to make that huge 
quantitative jump. Uh, so he's going to have a lot to teach us. All right. Well, yeah, I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day where I'm in awe and I get to, I get to just look around and see the, the truth and be to experience the truth and have that peace that goes beyond understanding. Yes. And uh, you're a humble individual for being as accomplished as you are. Well, thank you. All right. Well, thanks. And we'll sign off. Yeah. Bless you, David. <laughs>